Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Uh, I am joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you, Harriet? Yeah, good, thank you. You've written the cover feature this week, haven't you? I have. Which is on Ireland. Indeed, luck of the Irish. Yes, and they have been having a good time recently, haven't they? They have, a little bit of a recovery, possible play. And so we're having a look at that and some of the companies that uh, that are exposed to Ireland and also from Ireland that are not necessarily so exposed to Ireland but are doing very well, nevertheless. And Bradley Gerrard, how are you, Bradley? Very good, John, thank you. You've been away, haven't you? Yeah, I had a week off down in Devon. So How was that? Yeah, it was brilliant. Did you bump into Graham down there? No, I didn't actually. No, he, he was down there. Wasn't he? <laughs> Having a good old time, but no, we, our path didn't cross, unfortunately. How was the weather? Mixed. Good, yeah, good for the start and the end, and torrential in the middle. Were you camping? No, no. He was. Well, <laughs> staying at the in-laws. All right, that's fair enough. Well, at least it was dry. Okay, well, so we're going to talk about Ireland in a bit. A bit quieter on the results front this week, but there's some you know, small but significant stories there. Let's start with uh, with seven days. Bradley, what's been going on? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously your leader column touches on the... Oh, don't um, talk about that. I oh, know, well, we, we, we won't, but just to, so the readers don't think, or listeners don't think we have completely ignored it, but obviously the, the thing, everything going on in Panama, you've uh, you've uh, covered that in your leader column, so I'd urge listeners to go and read that. I guess um, an interesting sort of thing uh, was a, a little update from um, Marks and Spencer, actually, which again has had a trading update today. The new chief, Steve Rowe, is going to remain in charge of the general merchandise division, which he was basically, he was the guy that turned the food division around and credited with that. He was only in charge of the... The general merchandise which is like clothing and that sort of thing for about six months before he got bumped upstairs to the top job there was a statement the other day saying actually he's going to stay in charge of that division as well as running the group so well he's not happy interesting. he's not happy about the performance there no and by all accounts i mean today he specifically talks about how disappointed he was really. yeah, yeah i think he used the word unsatisfactory which is quite sort of a harsh tone for mns usually they are typical in sort of trying to find the bright side but today it was extremely sort of dour and really emphasized that that is the i mean he says it's the top priority well that's i mean that's a very different approach to, to Bolland as you say yeah. uh, Mark Bolland the previous chief exec who managed to put a, a gloss on pretty much everything yeah, uh, that the company ever to put did. a gloss on declining like for likes at half of your business especially when it's at least 50% if not more of sales and they always I think Bolland really focused on food as, as outperforming in a deflationary environment and that is an achievement but fashion retail and homewares is also a deflationary environment to some extent particularly with the advent of, of online and I sort of feel like every part of M&S p- pulls its weight. Food, online's done very well under um, Wade Gary. So, well, that, she was she was previously Tesco, wasn't she? She was, yes. And online sales are, are going gangbusters. They had a bit of an issue, a bit of a teething issue when it first launched. It was criticised by users for not being very user friendly. It was slow. It wasn't a lot of stock, but. The numbers are good. I've got to tell you, here's a little bit of a, an anecdotal uh, story here. I wanted to buy a hi-fi, right, for my kids. And so I found one that I quite liked on uh, Tesco's website. But that looks nice. Good price, good good spec. But they've forgotten to put the dimensions of the thing on there. How do you, as an online <laughs> retailer, forget to put the dimensions of a product on your website? Yeah, I Insane. Mean, it's amazing how many shortcomings there are in online <laughs> retail and i think i was anecdotally as well i mean obviously luxury department stores aren't really listed but someone was telling me that the other day that it was just interesting in the light of our debenhams tip which which listeners might have read recently about how they're harnessing online to work with the retail estate and someone was telling me about harrods the other day and how they were doing the same thing and basically picking from the shop floor. The problem with that at Harrods, it would seem, is that most people's online orders don't actually go through because they get an email saying, 
sorry, we don't actually have that. I mean, that's just terrible. But Mark's expenses are starting to get it right under Laura Wade Geary. Yeah, it would um, seem so. But clothing ranges still need a, a lot of work from the sound of things. I mean, I, you know, I, I've bought the odd suit from Marks and Spencers. Haven't bought one for a while because quality yeah. has kind of slipped. It has slipped and that's a big thing that the analysts are focusing on. It's two, It's twofold, actually. It's quality versus pricing, mm. which very often in retail are, are inextricable, really. Prices have started, well, in my experience, they've started to nudge up a little bit. And as you say, the quality started to slip. I've actually, from personal experience, returned quite a few things to Marks & Spencer because they fray or the hems come apart or whatever. And I think, you know, if you're going to offer or if you're going to market yourself as a classic staple on the high street, quality's still got to got to be up there I, I think so uh, I must admit I, I uh, own a, a raincoat that I bought from Debenhams not too long ago and you know me and clothes you know we, we, we're not best friends I wear them and I wear them and they you know I batter them this thing has not lasted very mm. well at all is that is that you know a problem across the high street or is, it, is it's just it's just all of them cutting corners on quality yes for a start I think in short yes but at the same time What's interesting about Debenhams, of course, is that it's a multi-brand department store. Well, this is one of their, their brands. So I suppose it's it's difficult for them to monitor quality, whereas for M&S, it should really be an in-house sort of operation because they don't sell other brands. They just sell M&S. They do their own manufacturing, etc. So they have a, actually a lot more purchasing power to look over the manufacturing and design and quality of these items. Debenhams, I assume, are buying from other brands. They're buying in. They have a buying team um, in the way that M&S works slightly differently. So maybe there's an argument to say some department stores don't have the control but, you know, in M&S's case, if they do have the control, then there's really no excuse for it. I mean, for me, this is a good sign that Steve Rowe wants to keep his, uh, his, his hand in here because, you know, if he thinks this is a big problem, obviously he's been in charge of that for a little while, can't do much to turn something around in a, very, in a short space of time, certainly not in six months, an organisation as large as, as that. Yeah, this is a good time for them, potentially. I think so. And Steve Rowe's a lifer, so he's been there since he was a Saturday chap on the on the till. So I think, you know, it's um, it's a good sign they've got someone in there who's loyal to the company and who probably is emotionally invested in it more than anything else. Just like we're all emotionally invested in the investors' quality. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> of course. So, yeah, I think it's a positive step. And listeners who have been following the magazine in, in recent weeks will we'll know our thoughts on, on M&S. And we're really eager to see what the interims that may hold because Steve Rose already said that he will give his sort of grand address at that point and lay out exactly what the plan is. But, you know, if we were to make a prediction, it's there's going to be a lot of investment in, in the clothing investment. side of the business and it's, it's going to get better. I think so. And even today... Obviously, we knew the numbers. They'd been pre-flagged. We knew they were not going to be great, particularly on the merchandising side. We knew that food would be up and outperforming. And so even though the numbers contained no surprises and they were as awful as everyone thought they were going to be, the shares rose. Mm. And I think that's got a lot to do with the fact that Steve Rowe is there making these rather assertive comments about what's to come. So what's our view? Bye, is it? Our view is bye. Yeah, so, I mean, this is in contrast to a piece we wrote a few years back when we were very critical of Marks and Spencers. So critical, in fact, that we got a, an angry letter from former chief executive Sir Richard Greenbury. And he ended up coming in to defend the business to, to myself and, uh, and Julia Bradshaw, who was then a uh, retail correspondent. And yeah, you know, I, th- I think uh, we, were, we were struck by this. That it's very defensive. Mm. Uh, but I think we were right. I think we were right to criticise the clothing offering yeah, at that point. Yeah, at the time. I mean, look at it. The trajectory hasn't improved in... Well, I mean, Richard Greenbury was there in 99. I mean, 
20 odd years mm. but, but you years. know for the sentiment there has been i suspect this this idea that mns could improve Absolutely. I think uh, it's a giant, you know, and not just Steve Rowe. I think almost everyone in the UK is emotionally invested in M&S because it's a stalwart and it's a classic and all of this sort of British heritage type stuff where, you know, nostalgia is having a huge moment in pop culture. So it wouldn't yeah. surprise me if things like M&S feed into that in a way. Indeed. Well, we spent a long time talking about Marks and Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> unexpectedly. Okay. I noticed on Seven Days, Bradley, lots about commodities. So we've got Glencore selling out of its agricultural business. Yeah, exactly, which is obviously a step towards it, kind of shoring up its balance sheets. That's good news there. Um, for Petra Celtic, though, the board is now recommending investors accept uh, the activist investor worldview's uh, 3p a share bid, which is a slight different change of tone from just a few weeks ago when Petra Celtic's board was hoping that a third party might come along and offer at least a little bit more. But that seems like that's not going to happen now, so they're... they're, they're urging investors to take this 3p a share buyer's market yeah clearly clearly generally oil and gas profits down across the board unsurprisingly yeah i mean obviously this is kind of a well-covered kind of issue but what was interesting about this little bit that i've put in seven days is that it was kind of data from the office for national statistics which looked at the net rate of return which they calculate by expressing profit as a percentage of the capital used to produce it and that is basically at its lowest since they started compiling the data which was back in 1997 okay. so i mean obviously commodity prices where they are you would expect profitability to be dented but just that sort of that bit of data was kind of interesting to bring home actually how much it is hurting the sector mm, so not you would imagine a good time for saudi aramco to float and that is our chart of the week this it, week it is yeah yeah we are commodity laden on seven days this we week, are we are but you know not surprisingly I mean, it was a very good chart from alex newman the the copy next to it there's actually a longer version online uh, we couldn't fit the, the entire piece in on, on that small slot i think just the size of saudi ramco almost means that regardless of when it sort of floats and also to be clear it's only going to float about five percent of the entire business that's the current plan it's just so vast that in a way, the price of um, oil is almost irrespective. I mean, it's not irrespective, of course, because that's what it deals in, but it is just so vast that any sort of um, listing of any almost percentage of it would create money for the Saudi government, which obviously wants to diversify away from oil because that's pretty much what its economy is based on. And they need the money. And they need the money. Yes, indeed, indeed. Okay, um, what else have we got in the news section, Bradley? A big bit of the news yesterday was around the um, the pharma sector. Um, so Your old beat, Harriet. Which, yeah, which Harriet knows well, which is useful. But, yeah, the Pfizer-Allegan deal was, well, was, was going to be a deal, 160 billion in size deal. Well, fell off a cliff, really. Well, I, mean, this is, I mean, it was a tax deal, tax inversion. Tax inversion. We've yeah. seen a lot of these or, yeah. you know, proposed tax inversion deals over the last year. And basically, Obama pulled the... Yeah, he's, from he's, under them. he's tried to do it before and obviously what's happened is that these companies have probably very well paid accountants and lawyers to find you know loopholes in legislation. They found it, um, but then the Obama administration kind of hit back in a way and they changed again these tax laws in the US, which effectively, trying to explain it very simply, they, they changed the way in which the um, sort of percentage of assets uh, are sort of analysed. So the deal before, I think, would have been below this 60% threshold, so they would have benefited from the tax benefits. But the way the rules have been changed now mean um, the percentage of assets owned by um, Pfizer would be 80% or something, I think. So it's just it's a very, very sort of complicated, convoluted change of rules. But basically what Obama's done is make, make it so that the deal crosses this threshold and goes beyond the point of um, getting these tax benefits. Well, 
tax, complicated matter, as it I write is. about in my editorial. And it's always moving as well. It is so I guess, moving. you know, I guess it's always a threat to these kind of deals. Yeah, um, and it also uh, it has an impact as well. It has um, an, attract, uh, an impact on the attractiveness, one could say, of the Shire uh, backs out a deal because... Um, although not a tax inversion deal, strictly speaking, because Shire's buying back Salter, so it's kind of. But you going... call it anti-inversion here. <laughs> anti-inversion. Um, but we still get benefits from that if yeah, they can take US synergies. revenues and. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah. There, there'd be synergies for one, but there would also be a, a tax benefit to a degree. Absolutely. Um, but that looks like it's going to be probably completely eradicated um, subsequent to these law changes in the US. So. Yes, I mean Harry, it's been a while since. Well, not that long. Couple a few of months, months. Couple of months. Surprised to you that this has fallen through? No. I mean, <laughs> if he did it once already with Abvi and Shire and was going to shut that down, then, as Bradley says, the way that tax works, and I speak as a as a former auditor in my past life, I mean, the thing about tax, as you rightly say, there's always a loophole. And the thing about loopholes is there's always a way to close them as well. Mm. So I think, uh, you know, the problem with these mega mergers when they are not shy about declaring that it's you know, a tax inversion deal is that that just alerts the administration to what you're doing. And so the administration look into it and they think, how can we stop this from happening? You know, Obama doesn't want an outflow of companies from the US. So. Indeed. Indeed. Having said that, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because Alijan, Irish company, mm. domiciled, domiciled, US yes. listed, US listed. Yeah. That's not that unusual in pharmaceuticals. No, no. I mean, Shire is actually a British company in terms of heritage, but it's largely a US company and where their market is, 85% of their ADHD market is, is US-based. Having said that, and I mean, they were Irish domiciled. So. Well, that, that's true, but then a lot of these companies that we're going to talk about in a minute in your feature, you know, a lot of their business is not coming from Ireland. No, anyway, so. I mean, very often... I think, depending what what sector you're looking at, but what I found quite interesting in the Irish feature was that a lot of these companies started as Irish companies and they've evolved into much more global businesses. So you've got to really keep an eye on to what extent their business is now exposed to that economy in particular. Is it dependent on it? Is it dependent on a certain cycle? Or do they sort of, you know, just reap the benefits of being in a tax tax haven um, whilst whilst having sort of global diversification to insulate them against trends. Well, let's come back to that because we're getting ahead of ourselves mm. a little bit here. Um, one M&A deal that hasn't fallen through, uh, Sainsbury's uh, acquisition of home retail. Yeah. It's happened. It's happened. Wow. It's all over. The saga is over as I start the piece. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I think it was three days before we put out our tip of the year advice on on Sainsbury that this news broke. So Yeah, it was, uh, it was a bit of a hairy moment for us. A bit of a really, hairy moment. It? You have to kind of think about how you justify all of that. But um, we went with it. We said at the time there was no hint that it was actually going to complete or be even agreed at that point and recommended to shareholders. So we kept valuing Sainsbury based on just Sainsbury alone. Um, now it's gone through. The market's had time to kind of digest. It wasn't very popular at first. The market didn't really take it very well, but it's definitely come around to the idea and so have we. I still don't get it. I still don't get a lot of it. And I still have to really try and get my head around the financing as well, because they're also doing a lot with their own bank, aren't they, to, to help fund it. So that's quite complicated. But if you're just trying to look on the surface level of motivation, the obvious motivation is trying on some scale to not let Amazon come in and bulldoze this country in terms of online grocery and homeware retail. It's fair enough. It's fair enough. What I will say about home retail, Argos, mm. is they put the specifications 
in terms of the dimensions <laughs> of their products on their website. Buy your so high Tesco, Tesco, bear that in mind, please. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> of course, what's still, you know, the future of Argos is not something that's hugely been talked about, which is quite interesting. It's all right, Argos. I've used it. I, it got slated, this. But, you know, it low, low grade, you know. Dragged it's through the mud. Right. It's all right. The problem is, is that when you're... When you own two brands and one of them is doing quite well, Homebase. But Homebase wasn't doing well all the time. At one point, it was Argos that was flying and Homebase was rubbish. Yeah, if we talk about in the lead up to this sort of breakup of home retail, though, I mean, you know, Argos was always the underdog, wasn't it? So it hasn't had the best rep for the last year or two. But, you know, we'll see what Sainsbury's are going to do with it. There's no talk of shutting it down completely Mm. or just converting all the you know it sounds like Argos will continue in some way shape or form I think it's all right I think I think there's a bit of a snob factor at work here when you when we're looking at this I think Mm. Argos is not a bad business I think I've bought stuff from them they do some decent click and collect stuff uh, certainly in London Um, well of course the click and collect stuff is is you know paramount I think to this deal it's the way that Argos has built itself both in terms of physical estate and the distribution network behind it and the ability to shift goods quickly around to different depots and what have you. I mean, Sainsbury's, obviously it has its own website and it's got some sort of distribution, but this is definitely going to add to that. So I don't think um, Sainsbury's actually has an app either, which maybe like that will be something it might do. Because if it's got a better distribution facility with Argos, maybe it can um, deal with more online you know, trade. An app or for phones? Yeah, to all you're shopping on. I'm I, so old. I the, only reason, <laughs> the only reason I don't shop at Sainsbury's is because they haven't got an app. You're joking. No, you're right? serious. You shop on apps? Yeah. Wow. The only thing I've ever bought through an app is a pizza from Domino's. Well, same, and I love, I that love one. the Domino's yeah, yeah. app. <laughs> Who doesn't want to on, see on the their train. pizza being cooked live? It's being baked. I don't, don't go that far. I just ordered the bloody thing. So. Oh, yeah, no, you've oh, got to watch, watch the you've wheel. Watch the wheel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, you people. You millennials. Honestly, God, I felt old enough before we had this conversation. Older. Okay. Yeah, I mean, talking of uh, yeah, tipping uh, issues, as you mentioned, this home retail deal mm. came very shortly after Tips of the Year had been put together. We've had a similar problem today, haven't we, Bradley? We have, yeah, the, the in the fund section, um, which is an area of the market that I used to cover. Uh, my older FT Magazine investment advisor, in our personal finance tip section, we've got a tip for the CF Miton. Not Milton. Not Milton, as the... Uh, Big good typo there says. this week. Apologies to everybody. <laughs> I wasn't going to highlight it, but that's fine. I'll come off it, mate. You can't hide from these things. You can't. It's it's there in black and white, isn't it? So yeah, the CF Mighton UK Valley Opportunities Fund, which is run by George Godber and uh, Georgina Hamilton. Is or was? Well, they've both got quite long um, notices, (laughs) which might be useful for some investors. Because yes, today, as the reason we're talking about this, they have resigned. So Georgina's got a six-month notice, I understand, and George has a year. Investment advisor actually uh, said just before I came down that they think that both of them are going to go to Polar Capital, which is a rival Mm. fund house. Polar doesn't have, I don't think, a long-only UK equities fund. So that that would seem to make sense, that they they might go there. They do quite specialist stuff, generally, don't they? Tech tech funds. Yeah, they've got insurance funds, tech funds, healthcare funds funds yeah they do have but they have been expanding in uk equities a little bit more and more, more generally sectors they hired um, us managers from threadneedle probably two or three years ago now um so they have been developing their more sort of mainstream inverted commas kind of equity franchises so um that story was a and we understand that they're going to polar capital from, from the colleagues but i think five, they're going to be right. i was five last night on press day 
Yeah, after I, after the page is gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's only been learnt today. Obviously, when the magazine hits uh, hits the shops. So um, yeah, but as you say, it's a problem with tipping. You know, things can happen that are completely mm. unforeseen, and that can be a good thing in the sense of Sainsbury's, or you know, it can go your way, or it can go the other way, whereby you've tipped a fund and the managers are going to leave. But I mean, Mighton, I know Mighton pretty well as a fund house. It's it's, it's a small fund house, so there is the risk that if you own the shares in Mighton, the size of this fund, if the, if the assets follow the managers, that could be a bit of a problem but yeah i mean it's a good fun house in general some good uh good personalities there good people there running it they've got a bit got a bit of time to get some new new managers in they yeah, do but, and i would uh, think with like gervais williams running running mighton as he does he's a well-known small cap manager um, good manager yeah yeah Very good manager popular. they've got some good people there so that there's a, there's a high chance they will attract somebody of a good caliber but obviously um the two managers at the moment have built up a good track record they've been very well mm. supported at mitre and they've got a good following and it is conceivable they could take a lot of the assets with them yeah you know good fun though i mean you know we picked it for the right reasons oh absolutely and, you know, market forces have worked against it we've all been there though haven't we harriet sainsbury's <laughs> i've had much worse than this don't you worry about that i've had much worse than sainsbury's yeah for sure yes yes let's not go into our failings but you know generally speaking when you've got an idea, it comes good in the long run. It does, and it, I think eventually it's all about sort of the whole rather than the individual tips. I mean, I know individually a lot of the writers on the team keep track of what they've tipped throughout the year just for interest, and very often you'll have a couple of big movers. It doesn't, you know, it's like any kind of portfolio management. You have to kind of look at the big big wins that will offset the odd loss here and there. Oh, and actually, this tip, this fun tip, is next to the tip updates page, and there's two good examples here. So, I mean, Kemring. Yeah, there's one. I mean, we tipped that week, week later profit warning. Based on a single contract, that contract's now come through, shares, shares are now up 8%. So, I mean, you know, you could look very silly in week one and like a star in week three or four. So, I mean, you know, these, these things happen. Uh, Flow Group, you know, we've talked about Flow Group on this podcast. I cannot believe none of you have brought this up to make me look silly because I have said I was very reluctant to do this tip. They make some kind of super efficient boilers oh now you said boiler i completely remember you this. remember yeah. it don't you bradley you yeah. remember it yes how can you forget i remember you interrupting the tip meeting where alex <laughs> to say i don't think we should be doing this well so far i'm totally wrong plus so plus 31 percent but you know this is this is one of those things small cat i mean still not a penny of revenue coming through really uh, from this so you know you're riding the sentiment here sentiment you know some good news lifted that share price and uh, but again i've been here before mm. been here before i did the kind of the opposite i i sold a company on the basis that it was rubbish uh, and then they had some really good a really good contract announced and shares went through the roof and um in the long run hasn't really panned out for them i don't think they exist anymore but you know again I'm happy if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and that's wonderful and great, but you know, just these things happen. These things happen. You like being wrong for the right reasons. That's like, Exactly. Exactly, <laughs> Harriet. That's, that is the philosophy. That is. Wrong for the right reasons. Hey, there you go. Let's move on to the cover feature, mm-hmm. which we alluded to earlier. Uh, it's a corker, actually. It's a corker. It's something I did one like this years ago, but it's good yeah. to come back to it because uh, Ireland has been one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. It was last year. In fact, year, the yeah. fastest growing the economy fastest in Europe. last year as of 2015, yeah. Um, that growth is expected to taper somewhat this year, but it's still an impressive growth rate considering the rest of Europe um, and certainly in light of the, of the slowdown in China as well. And it's not one that obviously has had the best rep over 
post-recessionary years. Obviously, a lot of that stems from the bailout that they were forced to take. So it's been a bit of a PR journey for them as well. And I suppose if it wasn't for their attractive tax status, they wouldn't necessarily have attracted as much corporate interest as they have. But in a way, it's been their saving grace because there are some really good companies there if you're willing to look at them. That's true. I mean, I mean, their tax advantages seem to be coming less mm. uh, as time goes on. Some of the UK corporate tax rate is going yeah, down relatively well. speaking. So, you know, sure. Relatively, that tax advantage is, is kind of narrowing somewhat. And a lot of the companies you mentioned in this feature, they're Irish. Yeah. They've been there forever. Yeah. They're, we didn't, they're we domic- didn't want to look at companies that had just sort of made themselves Irish domiciled because that's not very interesting. No. And a lot of them aren't don't even have one foot on the ground, really, in Ireland, apart from the odd board meeting to make it legal. Mm. So um, we didn't want to really look at those kind of companies because they're a dime a dozen in a, in a way. Um, we wanted to look at companies that were either Irish in their sort of bloodstream or they had started in Ireland or they still have massive exposure there, yeah. even if they are now global companies. So, but it's, so it's interesting, I mean, just sort of peddling back a bit. Ireland is interesting for, for us in the UK because it is our closest overseas market, but it's different to our other overseas markets because a lot of these companies have dual listings uh, on the London Stock Exchange. Yep. They're not generally included in some of the kind of trackable indices like the FTSE 100 or mm-hmm. FTSE 250. You can track them through the ISEC. Yes. And you mentioned a couple of yeah, ETFs so, you can play that with. Yeah, one ETF is, is US-based and the other one um, is accessible for um, London investors as well. So so there are a, a couple of ways to play it. There's also a bit of a dividend issue as well that people have to watch out for just because obviously there is a tax issue if you pay UK tax yeah. as opposed to Irish tax, etc. But it's a little bit easier than the, the sort of continental European tax withholding tax issues that we have to Yeah, yeah. It, it's not that difficult to understand, but we have included sort of an, a, a guide at the end of the feature about those issues and how to to go about actually playing this because it's not as easy as investing just through the LSE. Indeed. I remember getting told off, I got a letter telling me off by one reader saying, you know, why don't you identify Irish companies as overseas? And we've kind of, we always treat them like they're, they're just UK companies. Yes, yeah, especially in results coverage. Obviously, we don't do results for US companies or anything like that. And speaking as a former healthcare writer, you know, that felt weird to write about perhaps, a, you know, an Irish company and, and nothing else. But you're right, it's because mentally speaking we class them as here <laughs> yeah yeah god i don't know whether that that, that opens a can of worms perhaps <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't have um okay so let's um so irish economy i mean it was in the you know it was really really badly hit um by the recession banking crisis property crisis yeah i'm really really bad i mean you could partly explain that the rapid growth because it's bouncing back from such a low ebb um, yes, I think, um, I mean, I should credit my co-writer on on this feature as well, Mark Robinson, who really took, I sort of led it and did a lot of the company's coverage and, and he looked at, at the history of it, which is obviously a really important. You've got to set the Irish economy up in context because the history matters and it informs what we're doing at the moment. And, you know, Mark's point really is that it was banking irresponsibility, which led to a lot of the crash and mm. actually the recovery is export-led which has always been Ireland's strength so you can kind of argue that as long as they keep the banking culture in a lot more of a responsible cycle it might not go too badly again yeah. I mean so, so I mean in terms of the companies you've looked at a lot of these do depend not so much on Ireland for their success but on on their global position so so in for example the food producer yeah. sector we've got companies like Glambia mm-hmm. which makes huge amounts of money in America 
yeah, it does. I mean, this is really Bradley's speciality Bradley. as well. He's a he's our food producer. I love Glenn, correspondent. Yeah. It's a wonderful. So. I, I tipped this very successfully years ago. It was a, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant company. Brilliant yeah, I mean, it's, it's doing something that not many other people do. So it's um, which is always often a good start. What is it doing? Well, it does um, nutrition and ingredients sort of um, science. It's <laughs> perfor- performance nutrition, mainly. I mean, this is yeah. Really, you know. I would say it was almost verging on common now to see people walking along the street with these like massive kind of flask things with sort of, mm. sort of like oatmeal coloured liquid in. Often that's protein shake or something, and that's yeah, kind of what these yeah. guys do. And yeah, very successfully. Lots of people like you know taking care of their bodies these days. Yep, adding not necessarily on this side of the microphone, but uh, <laughs> certainly over in in the US where they do a lot of their business. Um, I mean, Kerry Group is another one we mentioned. Very very similar. Um, probably, I think we probably covered this in the uh, sugar feature we did a little while back. Yeah, they were mentioned because they're they're partly involved in reformulation as well. Um, so they're helping companies to they help companies to make their sort of products, I guess, taste the same without being the same. Yeah, yeah, and a bit more healthy. A bit more healthy, of course. Um, Fife, the uh, the banana producer, and Total Produce, whose results you covered quite recently, to my amusement. I, <laughs> yeah, just, just just to mention the melons gets you going, doesn't it? <laughs> oh now you're God. making me seem pure. Uh, it was the way you wrote it. <laughs> um, but they're doing extremely well. Global presences in these very important fruit and vegetable markets. Yeah, exactly. And as, as Harriet's kind of said, I mean it's. You can't just look at this. Uh, the companies listed in Ireland and think they're just a play on Ireland. You know, a, a lot of these companies have maybe started there and have been there a long time. But yeah, it's their global presence, which um, is perhaps overlooked um, by by a lot of investors. Actually, well, we we picked these out as acquisition targets. In fact, I think five was a tip of the year. It was wasn't a takeover it? tip of the a year. A takeover yeah. tip of the year, yeah. but it ended up not being taken over, even though someone tried. Was it someone, Ch- Chiquita? Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it fell through in the end, um, unfortunately. But I mean, there's so much consolidation. We're we're, we're going to be doing a sector focus on this shortly, Ooh. actually. About about consolidation in, in food producers and sort of ingredients and, and all of that stuff because uh, I think Mark's going to look at it eventually. But um, yeah, it's so hasn't been taken over, but it, it may well be. But these guys, I mean, good strong cash flows coming through, which has enabled them to, to enabling them to go out and buy lots of little producers from around the world and really build, you know, really quite big companies. Not quite Del Monte, but on the way. Not quite, but good. Yeah, watch, um, watch. And then a number of companies that. Um, uh, much more exposed to Ireland. Mm. So, in fact, involved in property that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest newcomers is Apple Green. That's been on my patch. That's still heavily exposed to Ireland. Um, it's a petrol forecourt retailer. So it's, uh, you know, the little shop where you go and pay for your petrol and you pick up your old pint of milk or whatever. That's very often Apple Green. I've actually seen a couple in London. And, and that's, really? yeah, okay. yeah, out near Vauxhall Way. And that's their big plan. They started in Ireland. They still have plenty of sites in Ireland but but the big plan is to expand further into the UK and even internationally perhaps into Europe so definitely one to watch there as okay. well. Okay and you've got these uh, these REITs so Green REIT, Hibernia REITs which are essentially commercial property um, companies, office yeah. developers uh, managers like like the REITs you would have in the UK. Yeah structured um, exactly the same but I suppose a bit more exposed to the Irish property market as opposed to just London and the surrounding areas. But I guess the the fact that the property market there was so decimated is is really enabling them to to bounce back from a, from a very low base. Yeah, exactly. It's what you were saying before, isn't it? When when you've had a market that's gone through a tough time, perhaps it's easier to play the recovery because it can almost only go mm. one way. But we've actually got Jonas on the case there as well, looking at um, things like Cairn Homes and 
what have you. So. Townhomes fascinating. This is house builders. Mm. House builders. I mean, you know, the UK house builders have gone uh, up in flying. Ireland, you know, housing was a big part of its problem. You, know, you hear, you heard of the ghost estates, you know, lots of, lots of development there, you know, that never got lived in. Mm. But, you know, they're, they're, the environment is improving for house building there too. And they're kind of behind the curve of where we are with UK house builders. Yeah, so. I mean, I think that's the big thing is that obviously there's so much froth in the London market and no one's really sure which way to go. And I get the feeling that a lot of people have the feeling that it's on a precipice and ooh, are we going to jump or not? And Ireland, as you say, has yet to reach that point. So maybe mm. there's froth yet to build and, and investors can can play that. Mm. So we didn't talk about was Brexit and the potential effect on Ireland. But uh, yeah, that's a story for another day. For another yeah, day. We, do, we, do, we do mention it at the beginning of the piece and obviously it, it it will have an impact if it happens. If but nobody knows what the impact will knows be. What I guess do. that's the story of Brexit. So yeah, except Ireland does export quite a lot to the UK. So I'm pretend, sure, you know, I'm sure we'll manage somehow. I'm sure, I mean, but no, we, we'll see. We'll see what it, happens. It's an important trading partner, and uh, yeah. no, it's a really good feature. I think you know, I've, I've always thought it's an exciting market. So, yeah, great. Thank you, Harriet. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Harriet. So, uh, a few results this week. Not as many as we've had recently. Moss Bros. Back to me. <laughs> Back to you, Harriet. Um, yeah, Moss Bros. I, you know, this, I mean, this has been a Simon Thompson tip. It's done very, very well. It's done indeed. very well, and it continues to beat analyst expectations almost every set of results, certainly the last two sets. I've worn their wedding suits. Still can't get my head around it. Yeah, it's a tricky one. We've still got it on a mini buy. It's not. It's not a full blown tip. Mainly from an, from an income perspective, quite frankly. I mean, the yield is almost up at six percent. Can't complain about that, especially when when the growth is. I mean, pre tax profits are up twenty twenty one percent last year. So you can't really argue with that. Like for likes, doing very very well as well. More than seven percent growth, but. Mm. As, as we were saying earlier in the office, we just don't really get it. I mean, I'm sure if Simon was here, he'd be able to defend it perhaps, but I don't know. It's, I'll ask him. Considering that we're talking about M&S and the fact that retail quality pricing are just inextricable from each other, how Moss Bros does it, I don't know. Doesn't float my boat. Never mind. Never mind. Um, let's let's pick one for you, Bradley. I mean, Hilton, you didn't write that this week, but you've been following this one for a while. Hilton, I mean, these shares have been doing uh, gangbusters. Yeah, you're right. They have been doing pretty well. Again, kind of helped a little bit by... Um, by it's internationalising, really. Well, yeah, um, it is. It is internationalising. It's a food packaging company, and I guess you know, there's always a worry that with things like this, which are kind of geared into the... Like the supermarkets, that sort of thing, the deflationary uh, pressures there that these guys could be impacted too. But they don't really seem to be. They seem no. to they seem to be able to carry on. And I think because they are packaging products for so many people, that kind of helps them weather it a bit. And as you say, becoming a bit more international is um, is uh, proving a good move as well. well. Australia, a good market for them. Yeah, exactly. The Aussies like their like their meats, which is what a uh, Hilton packages. So well, there you go. Very sensible. Uh Sensible bit of international diversification there. Absolutely. Okay, not uh, as many results this week as uh, as there have been uh, of late. We've got results from the AA, uh, which is not not too long ago floated. Uh, Plexus on the oil and gas front, which uh, provides some kind of drilling equipment, which has obviously suffered. Uh, still a great company, which we like. Card Factory. Mm-hmm. Tip. Tip. Doing well. yes and no Uh, it's a complicated tip in terms of share price performance it's fairly flat but we tipped it on an income basis and the yield if you take into account the special dividends is up at 7.5% so you can't Mm. can't complain about that scoff at that Uh, wireless group which uh, threw me for a minute till I realised it was UTV (laughs) um, which is another Irish 
broadcaster, in mm. fact. So uh, they're, they're doing okay. Doing yeah, good. I used to cover them in, in my own days. Yeah, and HSS Hire, which was uh, a hire company floated not too long ago, which really hasn't impressed a great deal. Never mind. Thank you very much, Bradley, and thank you very much, Harriet. Plenty more in the magazine this week. We've got uh, John Barron's latest investment trust portfolio update. James Norrington's taken a look at uh, risk-reward and interest rates, what happens to, to the equity risk premium in interest rate cycles. Uh, lots of comment. The tips, as per usual. Hopefully there's no horrors waiting around the corner tomorrow uh, for them. Personal finance team will be on their own podcast tomorrow, and we'll be talking through uh, what's in the section there. So, thank you. And we will be back again next week. Enjoy the magazine, Green Shoots, £4.70, all good news agents. Speak soon. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.